We're glad you're joining us here at NRCC Online. This is a recording of our community gathering as we do each week to think together about the spiritual journey. At the end of the lesson, we open the floor for discussion. We'd love to hear what you're thinking, too. Go to our community's Facebook page, post your thoughts. You might have come wondering how we think about an important day like this. And if that's the case, I'm sorry, because that's not what we're going to do today. <laughs> However, if you go to our website and go to the audio files and you put Easter into the search box, like four or five different Easter's, I have talked about how we think about this. There's plenty there. Even better, the book, Rethinking Your Story, has a whole chapter putting the mystery back in Easter. It would be good to frame how do we think about this important day. But that's not what we're going to do today. Today, I'm going to tell stories. And to frame those stories, I wrote the reflection this morning on the basis of one of the texts that's being read across the planet today. It's the text that comes from Isaiah 65. Now, if, as um, Jennifer said earlier, you read it later today, what you will hear is you will hear the prophet promising the people of Israel hope. These were people who had long suffered under tyrannous invaders. These were people who had long been denied peace, were constantly in the place of defensive posture in war. These were people who had not had enough to eat because their crops had been carted away by these invaders. These were people who had experienced their babies dying early, their moms and dads and uncles and aunts dying early from starvation. And to these people, you will hear the, promise, the, the prophet promise hope. Speaking on behalf of God, you'll hear him say, hold on to hope even in these dark times. Hold on to hope. You'll hear him say, a day is coming when we'll have a new heaven and we'll have a new earth. Hold on to hope. A day is coming when you won't even remember these painful times. There will be days of gladness and rejoicing, days of forgotten troubles. Hold on to hope. We'll be free of these scourges. No more infant mortality, no more premature death, no more famine or war or invaders. God will do this thing for us Hold on to hope. And so churches across the planet put this text into our rotation so that it shows up on Easter because in our Christian tradition, the story that we tell about Jesus and about life and about death and about re rebirth speaks to this ancient longing, the longing, the hope, peace, justice. So when I was writing this morning's reflection reading, I did what we've been doing. I listened to the prophet trying to imagine God not outside of ourselves as the text itself does, but trying to imagine God within, the indwelling Spirit of God. And if we were to think of God as within us, how would I hear the prophet? And so what I heard the prophet saying was, you and I, we carry within ourselves the possibility of a new heaven and a new earth because we carry the indwelling Spirit of God. I heard the prophet say, you and I, we carry within ourselves the possibility of a better future because we carry the indwelling Spirit of God. And so, have a listen again to this morning's text. A new world is always emerging somewhere in someone. Every day, someone rises above petty cruelty and embraces love. Every day, outcasts are restored by someone to someone. 
A new world is always emerging somewhere in someone. Every day, babies who would once have died live, and parents who would once have mourned rejoice. And old people, once living alone, find loving community. Every day, someone once homeless finds a home. Someone once hungry plants a crop that will feed them. Every day, people once crushed by invaders live in peace, and those once overrun by calamity raise their children in peace. A new world is always emerging somewhere in someone. The day will come when this new world will gain a critical mass. When that happens, we'll wonder what fantastic thing could happen next. Will wolves and lambs feed together? Will lions eat grass like an antelope? A new world is always emerging somewhere in someone. So why not in us? Why not access the inner divine and let that new world emerge through us? So first, thank you to Chris Thompson for doing the animation for me. I ran out of time in the schedule and he did that for me. Thank you, Chris. A new world is always emerging somewhere in someone. Why not access the interior divine and let that new world emerge in us and through us? So today, stories. Stories about a new world emerging somewhere in someone. Now, stories are powerful because they carry layers of meaning that root us in experience. So what stories do is they take big idea, big principles like death and resurrection, and they communicate them in very here and now kinds of ways. So stories, but first a little context as we do. Um, in the Rethinking book, uh, Rethinking Our Story book, I write two sections on the central Christian idea that we call salvation. And in that, by looking back over history, I say that for many of us as church folk, the idea of salvation that we inherited is a very reduced idea. It's a shrunken, diminished version of what the concept originally was. Because what it was, if we go back in history, was an experience that those who went before us testify is too expansive even to fit into words. But since words are all we have, we try. But when we try, we cannot shoehorn this idea of salvation or awakening or being enlightened or however you want to talk about it. We can't shoehorn it into even one story. And so over time, we developed six stories. If you like theology, you, these are called theories of the atonement. But that's something you don't have to know. Six stories that are our attempt to capture in words the experience that is too big to wrestle into words. They are our stories of salvation, our stories of awakening, our stories of enlightening. Six of them. One, I forgot who I was. I forgot who my true self is. And then I had this experience, and now I remember. I remember who I truly am. A second way we've talked about this. I was lost, and I was wandering and then I awakened to this new reality and I have found my way back to 
my true path. A third way. I was enslaved in a lesser life. And then I saw what I had never seen. And now I've been set free. Fourth, I was weakened, living in a weakened state. And then I caught a glimpse of the deeper deep. And now I have found a strength I did not even know was there. A fifth, I was blinded. I couldn't see what I needed to see. But now it is like scales have fallen from my eyes and now I can. And then the sixth one, the one that I used to gather the stories that I'm going to tell you this morning. I was dead. I was dead inside. I was dead outside. But then I accessed a newness of life. And now I live. I live. I live. Well, if you haven't read the book, I would encourage you to do it. It's an important foundation for our community. But that's how I started preparing for this Easter lesson some time ago. I began to ask this question to people about the sixth story we tell about this awakening experience we call salvation. I would say, tell me a story about when you found life on the other side of death. Tell me a story. Now, the first story is my own, and it's a story I've referenced before, and I wouldn't do it again except that Denise said something funny this week. I thought it was worth saying just because I get to say what Denise said, which I thought was funny. And so, talking about the scores, these stories with Scott, Scott said something that struck with me. He said, you know, when you're in death, you don't always know you're in death because it feels really normal, and it feels like it's just an everyday Tuesday, for example. And that reminded me of the early years in our relationship when I was trying my dead level best to be a good man. I was trying my dead level best to be a good partner, but was in death and was creating death. Now, you've probably heard me say it before that when my shadow side comes out, it tends to come out as controlling. And uh, I didn't know that that was happening in the early years. Denise was keenly aware that that was going on in the early years. In hindsight, I couldn't see it at the time, now what I realized I was doing was trying to control life's variables just to make sure that the out of control that I had experienced in my family of origin would never again happen in my life, would never again happen in my family's life. So it didn't feel like death. It felt like a good guy doing his best to do a good thing. But ask Denise about those years. Yeah, it was death. So... We were eating the other evening and she was telling me about her day and she said she'd had a conversation with a young woman who was in the tough relational years, kind of in those seven to ten years when we're really trying to hammer this thing out. And Denise didn't say these words, but I kind of pieced it together in my own mind. So what was happening in this conversation, she said, is this, this is the part I pieced together. This woman was kind of looking at our relationship, some 30 years in, running like a well-oiled machine. This thing is really working and perhaps had normalized in her own mind that that's what healthy relationship looked like. And Denise said something along the lines of, oh, honey, <laughs> there were years, several years, I'd lie in bed next to this guy and I would wish he'd have a heart attack. <laughs> Now, now she's not a mean woman, so she wanted it to be quick, <laughs> kind of painless, <laughs> but dead would have been better. <laughs> now, I think it's funny now 
because I don't think I ever said this out loud, but I had that same thought during those years. <laughs> Only for me, it wasn't a heart attack, it was a car crash. Quick, painless, and done. <laughs> and here I was, those were the years I was trying my best to be a good partner. I didn't know I was in death. I didn't know I was dealing death. Clearly she did. But over time, we, I did a lot of counseling, you know, done a lot of reading and listening and studying, doing the worksheet process that we described, trying to become self-aware of what are the drivers and the motivators that are going on, being honest in spiritual community, talking about my life and soul with my spiritual friends. Well, what has emerged is this very picture of life that you see before you now, but it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't always that way. A new world is always emerging somewhere in someone, and a new world emerged in me. I was saved. I'm still being saved. One of the stories told me, my grandmother died a few years ago. Everybody's grandmother dies, but when my grandmother died, the glue that held the family together died. She was the kind one. She was the caring one. The parents in our family system were not really in a position to be the caregiving, taking care of ones. Neither were the aunts or the uncles. It was the grandparents, and actually not really the grandparents. It was grandmother. Grandfather was gruff, and that's a nice word for it. His approach to family was, go away. His approach to family was, don't get in my way. So it was grandmother. Grandmother kept us on track. She helped us when some of us were struggling with drugs. Grandmother was the pillar. She helped when one of us was struggling with PTSD. It was grandmother. When there were money troubles, it was grandmother who rallied us together, helped us help one another, kept us together, and got us through to the other side of our troubles. Grandfather, leave me alone. Take your problems elsewhere. And then, grandmother died. You cannot believe the hole that left in our family. Nobody to keep us together. But something happened. Salvation. A new world emerged somewhere in someone. A new world emerged in grandfather. I don't know what happened to the man, but after years and years of go away, you are not my problem, he saw something he hadn't seen, maybe, accessed something he hadn't accessed, perhaps, looked inside, found the indwelling spirit, maybe. But at an age when people get set in their ways, grandfather changed his ways. He found what he hadn't found. He touched what he hadn't touched. Now, grandfather is the one who calls grandfather is the one who looks out for and holds us together. And when the nephews have been struggling and when the nieces have been struggling, it is him who is holding us together. It is him who is caring for us and watching over us and rallying us to take care of one another. He lived so many years in death, and I don't know how, but he emerged into newness of life. These weren't the words that were used, but the story was... A new world is always emerging somewhere in someone. A new world emerged in grandfather. Grandfather was saved. 
another. My mother moved to town to die with us. Mother was a difficult person, anything but a supportive person. And my need for her to be, for her to be there for me in my life had been a long-time source of very deep pain. It was a point of death in my soul. For years and years and years, I needed her to be something, and she was not that thing. And then she died, and there's no pretty story to tie things up. And my mother was a hoarder. So after she died, I had to deal with all of this stuff. So many hangers. How many hangers does one human being need? And kitchen gadgets, and used clothes, and old shoes. And it was all junk because she would never spend any money on all of the stuff she hoarded, except Birkenstocks. She had 10 pairs of Birkenstocks. Now, she only wore two of them, and they were worn out, but she had 10 pairs. <laughs> so I'm cleaning, and I'm hurting. But there, in amongst the hangers and the Birkenstocks, I had an experience. Life on the other side of death. I don't know, maybe it was a vision. I don't know, maybe it was a strong imagination, but it was palpable. It was something that shook me and it remains within me even now after all this time. It echoes through my soul. And in this vision, imagination, this experience, in this, my mother was healthy. She was not wounded. And there she was in this experience actually rejoicing, rejoicing as I was getting rid of all of this horrible, horrible stuff, stuff that had suffocated her all of her life that she wasn't able to get rid of, stuff she had not been able to free herself. She was healthy enough that in this vision that I had, she was dancing with joy as I was just loading all of this stuff into trash cans. And there she was in my vision, healthy and free and alive and awakened and she could love me, and she could support me, and she could mother me. What she had not been able to do when she was living, there was this settled assurance in me that had she been able to, had she not been so deeply wounded, she would have been dancing at the joy of being my mother. And when I had that experience, a dead place inside of me, a hurting place inside of me, a lacking place, a resenting place, a longing place, was touched and healed. And there was a freedom that had not been there before. I was able to accept my mother as she was with all of her wounds, and that was deeply freeing for me. And when that experience happened there amongst all the hangers in the trash, something happened to me that I can only describe as a lightness. Some heavy weight that I hadn't realized I had been carrying was shed. My body was lighter. My head was lighter. My heart was lighter. And acceptance flooded me. Love flooded me. Health and wholeness began this swirling flood within me. And she didn't say these words, but what she was saying was a new world is always emerging somewhere in someone. A new world emerged in me, and I was saved. 
another. I have lived my whole life driven by an inner instinct that compels me to go, 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 go. Some part of me believes that going makes me good. Doing good stuff. Working hard to do good stuff. Never sitting down because there's always more good stuff to be doing. And now my body has stopped cooperating with the agenda. This death-dealing instinct that I have brought to the world is making its impact. Now, there have been plenty of indicators along the way that it is a death instinct, and really I have tried to see through the fog. I have tried to unpack the false self. I like to do good things. So I've been doing good things, trying to work on my false self. But what we say all the time, you can't see what you can't see until you see it. Now that has been me. My most recent indicator that my instinct was killing me has been awakening in the night hours, stabbed with anxiety. There's nothing I'm anxious about. There's no episode to which I can pin my anxiety. It's just this stabbing anxiety that floods up inside of me, this overwhelming dread that captures me in the night hours. Now, I have been working the circle. And as you can imagine, that sitting silently part of the circle, that contemplative practice part of the circle, it is a direct challenge to my go-to going instinct. So I'm not very good at it, but this last year I've been doing it. I sit down even though everything inside of me is screaming, get up, do something valuable, do something important, be a good person. But I've been screwing myself to the chair and I've been staying there. And I've been journaling. And I've been walking in nature. Not marching like I typically do because it's good. I've been walking in nature. And I've been talking with spiritual friends. And I've been learning. And anxiety stabs me in the night. And dread overruns me in the night. Until it didn't. Somehow I caught a glimpse of a deeper deep. I don't want to oversell this thing. I don't think it's all completely over, but peace has broken out inside of me. Life has broken out inside of me. Something deep within me has broken through, and it's different now. I breathe differently. I walk differently. I've seen something that I hadn't seen. I've become alive in a way that I wasn't alive. Didn't say these words, but what was being said was, a new world is always emerging somewhere in someone. A new world emerged in me. I was saved. Finally, a family member hurt me deeply. It was a big hurt life-altering, big, unforgivable, indefensible kind of hurt. Nobody, if they knew the story, could mount even a shred of justification for what happened. And for years and years and years, I tried to move on. For years and years, I tried to love again. For years and years, I tried to forgive. I wanted what I had lost because I hadn't just lost that relationship. I'd lost the relationship with all of the family who orbited around the person who had done the harm. But I couldn't. I couldn't forgive. 
I couldn't move on. When it comes to that forgiveness thing, I had plenty of people telling me that I shouldn't forgive. That's unforgivable. But the thing is, I wanted to, but I couldn't. And then this family member died. And the only thought that I had was, now I will never hear, which I never did, I'm sorry. I will never hear, which I never did, I was wrong. So I went to the funeral and was the only dry eye in the house. Everyone loved this family member. Not just our family, the whole community. It was a deep loss for everyone. There was weeping, almost breast-beating grief and sorrow. But I didn't grieve. I couldn't grieve. So, as happens, after the funeral, everyone goes back to the house and there is food and there are people telling stories of comfort and there are stories being told. But for me, nothing. Except, now I will never hear, I'm sorry. With all the hubbub going on and all the noise and all the storytelling, people doing what they do after a death, I got really quiet. Deep inside, kind of quiet. And in that quiet place, there bubbled up some words from an old-timey hymn that I had heard when I was a kid. Steal away. Steal away. Steal away. And so I did. I stole away. I left the house. I went outside to a quiet place, a meaningful place from my past, and I stood quietly. I wasn't planning to mount a posture of receptivity, but in hindsight, I was receptive. And how can I say this? I could describe it this way. A dead place inside of me came alive. Yeah. I guess I could say life happened to me or forgiveness happened to me or love happened to me. But it wasn't a thing that I did. I'd tried to do it in the past. But there, in that quiet place, with all the noise going on inside, moving on, happened to me. Forgiveness happened to me. Opening up again happened to me. But even as I tell you that, Doug, those words don't capture the experience. It was like a flood surging in me. Love was in the mix, yes, but that's not the right word. Divine life, yeah, perhaps those could be words, but they're not the right word. Now, I'd been to counseling over this thing. I'd been told that I should forgive, that I should open my heart up again, and I'd been told that I shouldn't forgive, that I shouldn't uh, ever allow that to go unpunished. But you know what? All of that stuff that was told to me didn't really matter because I was not in control of the experience that I had standing outside that day. It happened to me. All I did was the desire, pay attention thing that we talk about as a community. I did desire to be free of the hurt, to be free of the anger, to be able to move forward, to move on, to be able to forgive, to be able to, lo to love. I did desire. And then when that quiet nudge came, steal away, I did pay attention and I did walk outside, but that's all I did. This thing, it happened to me.
this thing, I didn't do it. Yes, there was readiness, and yes, there was willingness, but I'd been ready and I had been willing for a long time. But after that day, I was changed. What had been did in me was alive. My innocence that had died was made alive again. The healthy me, the loving me, the gracious me that had died was alive again. The me that had died after the hurt emerged again and there was life on the other side of death. The guarded me, the self-protective me, the angry hurt me, the death-dealing me, gone. And my heart could love and my heart could forgive and my heart could reopen. I could love me. I could love the community inside the house. I could even love the one who hurt me. All that stuff Jesus talks about, loving self and loving neighbor, loving enemy, it happened to me. Later, when I told someone about this experience, the person said, that person doesn't deserve your forgiveness. That harm is unforgivable, which is true, but kind of irrelevant because this thing happened to me. I was blind, and I don't know how, but now I can see. I was weak, and I don't know how, but now I am strong. I had forgotten my true self, and really I don't know how it happened, but now I remember who I am. I was wandering, lost, and now I am found, and I was dead. And now I am alive. And the person who told me the story didn't say these words, but in essence what they were saying was a new world is always emerging somewhere in someone. A new world emerged in me. I was saved. Now that's not a typical Easter message, but it is the story of Easter. A new world is always emerging somewhere in someone. I was dead and now I am alive. And that's not a typical Easter invitation you've been around church, you know this is the day to create the invitation. So it's not that, but it is an invitation. It's an invitation to walk this spiritual journey, to share the journey with others so that you're not alone, to work the circle, to desire, to pay attention, to be willing and to be watchful, to posture the waiting that allows us to move into this greater life on the other side of death. It is an invitation to become what our tradition promises we get to become, alive on the other side of death, where once we were dead to now be alive. And so my prayer today is, indwelling Holy Spirit, may we, each of us, experience life on the other side of death. May we experience it in very tangible ways in our lives, in our homes, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs. May we, as Paul said, work out this lifetime of salvation, ever deepening in our experience of life on the other side of death. And may, in whatever mystery awaits us, 
on the other side of our last breath. Clearly experience life on the other side of death. Be it so as we follow Jesus. Amen. Here's a quick recap of the What Are You Thinking time we did following this lesson. And as we said, we'd love to hear what you're thinking too. Head on over to our community's Facebook page and post your thoughts. You can search Facebook for North Raleigh Community Church Downtown. So as, the, uh, as we open up the floor, one of the themes of the first few comments that came out was, okay, Doug, you're telling us all these stories. That's good. And uh, thank you. And they are helpful stories. But now let's try and put some definition around this word salvation or some definition around kind of the theological construct that many of us inherited growing up in church. And so we talked a little bit about that, and I don't know that it would be all that helpful for me to tell you the way I responded. I actually put that, a lot of that, into the book, Rethinking Our Story. You can get that on Amazon if you're interested. But at the end, uh, one of the folks in the community told a story about how language can constrain us. And in this story, uh, she talked about uh, an immigrant who'd come from China as a child, and during that uh, that childhood, because this child grew up in the English language with the subject, subjunctive tense of what might have been, what could have been, uh, he was constrained by that in a way that his father wasn't, who didn't grow up in English, uh, but grew up in Chinese. And so he was stressing over a change in career and the possibility that his father might be feeling of what could have been if he had followed this engineering track or some such thing. And it was a beautiful story to depict that our language sometimes constrains us. And right now we're in this moment where our worldview is being upended and we're having to rethink so many of the framing constructs that have divine, defined our lives and in particular our religion. And so if we make this shift, this new reformation of our Christian tradition, it is perhaps going to be a shift from theology or doctrine or axioms or confessions, a shift from that to an experience-based religion, the experience of salvation, the experience not unlike the stories that I told. So that was one of the things that came up in the lesson. Another person spoke up with a story of their own, and they said, you know, I went through years of depression. And... Uh, it was a very dark time for me, a very um, hurting, wounding time for me. And then she said, there was a day that came in which I began to walk, not unlike that person in the story that you told, I began to walk slowly in nature. And it was like for the first time I saw trees and I saw leaves and I saw light and I heard birds and it did something inside of me, something that changed me. And I had never associated that with the awakening of the spiritual life or even this idea of transformation that happens to us in the course of salvation. But as you were talking, I thought, oh, so that's something of what this experiential kind of salvation looks like. Well, I thought that was an insightful comment. So that's a quick recap of what are you thinking on this Easter Sunday. And uh, as always, if um, you'd like to comment, we'd love to hear what you're thinking about uh, our Facebook group or our Facebook page. 
Uh, you can find them by searching North Raleigh Community Church. Thanks so much. If these recordings help you move forward on your spiritual journey, we hope you'll take an ownership stake in the community and support the health and well-being of the community. You can go to our website, northraleighcommunitychurch.org. The donate button is at the top of the page on your computer's browser, at the bottom on your phone's browser. Thank you.